Welcome to the South Carolina Department of Mental Health's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion podcast series, A History of SCDMH, Diversity and Representation Throughout the Years, Episode 2. To our ongoing April 2023 Diversity Month celebration, a history of SCDMH, diversity and representation throughout the years. Today we will be focusing on the beginning of the community mental health movement, separate and unequal, the civil rights movement and DMH. During the last podcast, Mark Binkley, DMH's executive project manager, an unofficial historian who is with us again today described the founding of the asylum, the precursor of today's Department of Mental Health and the first 100 years, the growth of the asylum state hospital, the aftermath of the Civil War when large numbers of indigent patients began to be admitted and the challenging conditions of the hospital administration, staff and patients and what they faced due to the overcrowding and serious shortages of resources, which were all only magnified for patients of color. So Mark, tell us about some of the notable events and developments that impacted State Hospital and DMH during the department's next 50 years from the 1920s and the early 1970s. Well, thanks, Janet, and thanks. I'm glad to be back. Uh, to talk about uh, a very fascinating subject, that being the history of, of DMH and really the history of public mental health care in America. Um, but of course, these 50 years were marked by uh, a couple of major historical events. Um, I think state hospital, like all uh, hospitals, state public hospitals in, in other states, um, suffered periodically from uh, neglect by the General Assembly and a lack of resources. And just like in the first hundred years where uh, support for the state hospital uh, by the General Assembly and, and resources from, from the state uh, would sort of come, come and go, um, the next 50 years was no exception. Um, uh, initially in the 20s, uh, there was uh, some increased support for, for the state hospital. Uh, and of course, in, in, uh, it, a, after a sort of a scathing legislative review of conditions at the state hospital, uh, the, in a report that came out in 1909, uh, the General Assembly finally did something that uh, uh, superintendents and boards of regents had been asking for for years, and that was uh, appropriate funding to build a a separate uh, facility out in Northeast Columbia, which was called for, for most of its existence, uh, was called State Park. Uh, we, we know it today as Crafts Pharaoh, but for, for decades, it was referred to only as, as State Park. So there was some new building uh, that went on and, and that relieved for a period of time, some of the uh, space issues for the hospital. But then, of course, the Great Depression came along in the 30s, 
uh, and, and for, for a protracted period of time, state resources uh, were, were vastly reduced. It, it really hit uh, the South hard, hit, hit the entire country hard, but, but magnified in the South. And uh, during that period of time, again, uh, the administrators and the staff at the state hospital uh, found themselves, and, and at State Park, found themselves without adequate resources. So conditions were basically just custodial and, and very difficult for, for the patients. Uh, you can tell from the reports by the superintendent and by the Board of Regents that the, the staff continued, as they, as they seemingly always had, to try and care for the patients. There was no lack of concern on the part of administration for patients uh, and for patient care, but they certainly lacked adequate resources. Then no sooner did uh, the Great Depression sort of come to an end with the beginning of World War II, then most of the professional staff uh, at, the, at the hospitals uh, left to go fight in the war. Doctors and nurses were drafted uh, into the war effort. And uh, so the amount of professional staff available for the state hospital and at State Park uh, was, was uh, uh, seriously eroded uh, as, as all the professional staff went off to war. And so it was also a very difficult time for patients and the remaining staff uh, during World War II. Uh, coming out of World War II, however, a, a lot of those doctors and nurses returned, including uh, some who would become uh, rather famous leaders of the state hospital with a very uh, sort of renewed energy about what could be accomplished by uh, proper organization of the hospital. And the, the person that sort of stands out in that regard is uh, William S. Hall, Dr. William S. Hall, uh, who's the namesake for uh, the child and adolescent program here. And he became a superintendent of the state hospital, having been an officer, a medical officer uh, in the army, and having been impressed by how the army uh, organized itself around providing supplies and providing adequate uh, resources to accomplish its mission, uh, he set out to reorganize the state hospital and by extension state park uh, so that uh, it ran more uh, like a uh, an organization than just a collection of, of services. Um, and, and he's credited, given a lot of credit for uh, making improvements. And also in the 50s, uh, 1950s, it may surprise some people, that was the earliest time that people finally uh, discovered that medication could improve the symptoms of people with mental illnesses. The earliest antipsychotic, Melaril, uh, was discovered as a uh, almost as an accidental discovery uh, that it could improve, uh, uh, reduce the symptoms of psychosis uh, in the early 1950s, and that was soon followed by more research uh, following uh, that discovery. Uh, antidepressants came out and improvements in other uh, medications to treat the symptoms of mental illness. So really up until the 1950s, the care that was afforded to people in the state hospital was primarily custodial care, not just in South Carolina, but, but nationwide. The other notable improvements in mental health care in the uh, 
in this 50 year period was the beginning of the community mental health movement. And uh, uh, as early as the 20s, uh, the, super, the then superintendent of the state hospital, Dr. Williams, created an outpatient clinic in Columbia, actually on the grounds of the state hospital uh, for people who weren't uh, patients, but had been former patients of the state hospital in order to try and uh, support them uh, to remain in the community and not come back into the hospital. And around, really around the country, but also with no exception in South Carolina, uh, different uh, philanthropic uh, individuals and local governments uh, began trying to create clinics uh, to treat folks uh, and, and provide them care outside of the state hospital. But as I said, these other major events like the Great Depression, like World War II, really kind of uh, didn't really allow those uh, efforts to, to blossom. And it wasn't until a uh, South Carolina governor named James Burns, who had been uh, Secretary of State in the Roosevelt administration, uh, a native South Carolinian came back and was elected governor. And he took on mental health care as kind of a uh, personal priority for him. And uh, he uh, and the legislature in the uh, early 1950s commissioned a study of uh, mental health care. And as a result, in 1952, the legislature passed what's known as the 1952 Mental Health Act, which actually created funding uh, for the development of community mental health centers in South Carolina. And uh, this was another instance in which South Carolina was way ahead of the rest of the country as being one of the first states to actually publicly fund community mental health centers. Most states did not provide significant funding for community mental health centers until the 1960s, and then only as a result of the federal government providing uh, funding for the development of community mental health centers. So again, another a feather in the cap for SCDMH and for South Carolina in, in being at least a decade and maybe perhaps even more ahead of the rest of the country in the development of community mental health centers. So I can, I can see some progress. Oh, we have some progress in medicine. We have some progress in building up some hospitals and in the mental health development of the mental health centers. So what role did the civil rights movement play in DMH's history? Well, like the rest of the South, uh, uh, South Carolina and its state institutions, and uh, certainly a state hospital was no exception, uh, were not on the forefront of civil rights. In fact, uh, state, uh, the state park, which I mentioned earlier, which ultimately became known as Crass Farrell State Hospital, was a segregated facility. That's where the uh, African-American patients were housed. State hospital was all white. And the vast majority of the staff at Crass Farrell I'm going to call it Crass Farrell, even though it was not known that not known as Crass Farrell until 1965. Um, the majority of the staff at Crass Farrell were also African American, and uh, just as uh, probably like the rest of South Carolina and the rest of the Deep South, the wages of the staff at Crass Farrell were below those of their counterparts at State Hospital. Um, 
I've seen some uh, old uh, menus of uh, uh, food that was prepared for staff and patients. And it clearly appeared that the food that was served to patients at Crass Farrow was uh, secondary or inferior to the food that was being served to the white patients at State Hospital. And so certainly uh, once the uh, civil rights movement began and, and certainly after uh, legally segregation was ruled illegal following uh, the landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education, which was actually a companion case to a South Carolina case related to uh, uh, prohibiting segregation in public schools in South Carolina. Um, Brown got all the publicity out of Kansas, but really it was a companion case to a case that had been filed also in South Carolina uh, by the NAACP. And so even with and in the aftermath of Brown, uh, the South, including South Carolina, resisted uh, integrating its institutions, including its state hospital. And so it was a continuing battle for uh, those individuals in South Carolina, many of whom were the staff at the uh, uh, segregated facility at what ultimately became Crass Farrell, who, uh, who uh, lobbied and argued and uh, threatened lawsuits uh, about equal pay for staff, uh, who uh, highlighted unequal conditions between uh, uh, what, what became Crass Farrell and State Hospital. Uh, and it was a struggle. Um, it was not until 1965 that the department ultimately integrated State Hospital and, uh, and Crass Farrell. Uh, and that was some uh, 11 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Interesting, very, very interesting. So cutting edge, um, South Carolina was ahead of its time. So I understand Majeska Simpson also played a role, role in DMH's fight for equity. What was her role? Well, uh, for those who don't know, Majeska Simpkins, Majeska Simpkins, excuse me, was a uh, very active, very visible, and very effective leader in the civil rights movement in South Carolina. And she was from the Midlands. Uh, and she was involved in all aspects of civil rights, not just uh, focused on integrating the state hospital, but one of her causes uh, was integrating the state hospital and in equal pay for the African-American staff at what became uh, Crass Farrow uh, State Hospital. And uh, uh, the uh, South Carolina uh, State Library has many of her papers and they've, and they've digitized them. And you can actually uh, go to the South Carolina State Library website and, uh, and see the collection of her papers. And she was a prolific and very articulate letter writer. And there are letters, uh, multiple letters that she wrote to uh, the then commissioner, well, he was first superintendent of the state hospital, later the first commissioner of the Department of Mental Health, which was actually created in 1964. Uh, it became known as the Department of Mental Health up to that point. It, it was the Mental Health Commission. 
and uh, she wrote to uh, Dr. Hall. Um, she wrote to uh, uh, the, the Attorney General of the United States on a regular basis, all about the uh, unfair uh, uh, continuing segregation of, of the Department of Mental Health uh, into black and white hospitals and the unequal pay uh, of, of the African-American staff. And she, uh, her letters to the U United States Attorney General were all to the effect uh, of encouraging the United States to sue uh, the Department of Mental Health and force it uh, to integrate its hospitals and to provide equal pay for, uh, for its staff. And the African-American nurses and nursing staff at Crafts Pharaoh also were very organized and, uh, and, and inspired by the civil rights movement. And they, on multiple occasions, threatened to go on strike uh, and literally leave the patients without care if their wages were not raised. And, and it was really uh, the pressure of Majeska Simpkins notably Majeska, but also other uh, civil rights leaders uh, who, uh, who ultimately brought about the, uh, the reluctant decision on the part of the Mental Health Commission and Dr. Hall uh, to uh, come up with a plan to integrate the hospitals. And their plan essentially was to uh, distinguish the hospitals based on the age of the patient rather than their race. So Crass Farrow in 1965, uh, in 1963, I'll go back just a little bit. In 1963, State Park was renamed Palmetto State Hospital. Uh, then two years later, when it, when it became the department's hospital for, for those patients 55 years and older, that's when it was renamed Crass Farrow State Hospital. And, and that was essentially the way the department integrated the hospitals is that regardless of race, if a patient was 55 years or older, uh, they were at Crass Farrow. And if they were younger than 55, uh, they were treated at the state hospital. And one thing to kind of remember about state hospitals, particularly back in the uh, prior to the 70s, is that uh, they were sort of one size fits all institutions. They weren't, they weren't just for people that had what we would recognize today as a mental illness. Uh, they were basically uh, for anybody who was disabled to the point uh, that they couldn't care for themselves or they had no family who was able to care for them. So a great many patients at not only uh, South Carolina State Hospitals, but throughout the country, a great many patients were elderly and were in the hospital, in a state hospital, simply because uh, they needed nursing care. They, they didn't have a history of mental illness. Uh, they simply grew old and feeble and had nobody to care for them. And remember, Medicaid was not enacted until 1965. So there were no uh, funds for people who needed nursing care and were indigent. If you were indigent and you needed nursing care, Either your family had to take care of you or you were in a state hospital. There weren't Medicaid nursing homes like there are today uh, where they can provide nursing care for poor people. Wow. I was thinking when you were talking about um, Majeska's um, activism, 
um, activism with results. And I love that. Um, thanks so much, Mark. I, uh, the key takeaways I see from all of this is DMH was both the head of the nation in many aspects of mental health care, but like South Carolina, most and most of the Deep South, resistant or reluctant to afford equal treatment to Black citizens, whether they were staff or patients. So that activism was so important. So very, very important. So um, listeners, if you're like me and find this so very fascinating, you have to tune in to next week where we will cover the 1970s and the 1980s and the expansion of community health services and the downsizing of the hospitals. Mark, I thank you so much for being our unofficial historian. Without you and these recordings, so much of this would be lost. So I think this is such a very important um, activity to engage in and getting this down um, along with the uh, writings that you keep mentioning that are where? At the library? Yeah, South Carolina State Library. actually have a a state-supported library that's that's done a great job of digitizing lately uh, all the records of of state agencies and and other citizens uh, outside of state agencies like Ms. Simpkins, uh, important individuals in in South Carolina's history, uh, who who brought about uh, in most cases positive change. Exactly. Thank you so much, and tune in next week for another podcast. Um, of the April 2023 Diversity Month celebration. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Janet. This concludes episode two of A History of SCDMH, Diversity and Representation Throughout the Years presented by the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. Thank you for listening. Music provided by Ketza, Brightness. <laughs>